Okay. Okay. Well, I, I think this is great because uh, there can never be too much emphasis on Jesus Christ. You know, uh, I find a, a slight problem in that, you know, he's mentioned in prayers and everybody's baptized into his name. And, but we have to ask the question, you know, is he central to our lives? Because he's the only one that can supply what we need. And I appreciate Ted so much for all he's given me over the years. And I was thinking of the classes that I had with him, and this is how much influence he's had on me. Homiletics, which is the science of preaching, and the Sermon on the Mount, class on the parables of our Lord, First and Second Timothy, and one on the Psalms. He was the educator, the Paul to a crew of rather unruly Timothys is what amounted to. But uh, even though that's been, well, 1981 was the first class that, I had with Ted, that was a Psalms class, and so even though even the last class I had with him was three years ago, and even though I'm finishing at LCC uh, another degree and doing some different things and planning on continuing, I think that the two years that I had with Ted were a very special blessing, and they cannot be duplicated ever, and nothing can replace them. And all I can say is thank you, Ted. God bless you. Well, it's a joy to be here with Jim and others. I'm sure that the Lord will forgive Jim for some of the things he said and forgive me for believing them. But it is a privilege to cross paths again because those have been precious days and the greatest days and opportunities of our life and blessings to which we press are still ahead of us. The future is that for which the past was made. He who is from eternity is the one who draws us toward eternity. We're in Matthew chapter 3. We've spoken of Jesus coming out of quietness, obscurity. God in his wisdom has not seen fit to tell us much about his early years. And he comes to the Jordan River to be baptized of John. Let's pick up our reading at verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee. Comest thou to me? Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were open unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Let's turn to Luke chapter 3 and read just briefly, pick up a thought that Matthew doesn't give us, and we'll do the same from John chapter 1. Then we'll ponder what we've just read. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 3. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was open, And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph and Paulus, Luke's account of genealogy. Interesting discussion about the differences in genealogy between Matthew and Luke, but we'll not get into that. Suffice for us to know that he is the son of Mary and the son of God, and that's our real purpose of study today. But Luke tells us two things. It tells us that Jesus is about 30 years of age at this time. So that helps us. 
And it tells us that when Jesus comes out of the water, it is as he is praying that the heavens are opened and he sees God's eternal spirit as a dove descending, which tells us something of God anointing Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and of power, as Peter will later tell Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. But it was as he was praying that the Spirit came down, and it is as he is praying and the Spirit comes that the silence of Jehovah for 1,500 years is shattered by a statement. This one is my son. I delight in him. So on this occasion, we have the testimony of God's Spirit, the very word of the Father in heaven. And it is appropriate that Jesus, as he begins his ministry, should be identified for all men of all ages. The eternal God says, this is my son. But turn to the first chapter of John. John, the gospel writer, the apostle, that beloved special friend of Jesus, records a conversation that John the Baptizer has with the people who come from Jerusalem, and we're going to lift out of that conversation something that John the Baptizer on this occasion says because it sheds some additional light. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us the account. Mark, just a brief reference that he was baptized. Matthew and Luke telling of the heavens being opened and the Spirit descending. Matthew and Luke describe Jesus' view of the events on that day. But John the Immerser tells what was in his mind on that occasion. Now, John tells us in his conversation with his disciples, it is not the, the deputation from Jerusalem. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But in verse 29, we read that Jesus saw, John saw Jesus, identifies him as the Lamb of God, refers to his greatness in verse 30, and we'll come back to all this later. Verse 32, John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptized with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. But we don't have any record, really, that Jesus and John had, had been together those 30 years. John, six months his senior. They had both grown up in Galilee, but they did not really know one another to speak of. So when Jesus hears of the work of John and the impact that he's having, and knowing that this is the Father's business, because verse 6 of this first chapter of John tells us that John the Baptist was sent from God to baptize. So Jesus in Nazareth hears of John's work and the whole nation going out to him, What's the rule that motivates Jesus' life from beginning to end? I must be about my father's business. My meat is to do the will of my father and to accomplish his work. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. It is finished from beginning to end, from childhood until his ministry is completed. Jesus wanted to do the work of his father. So he is drawn to the river Jordan, and as he approaches, John is overwhelmed by that which occurred. He said, you're coming to be baptized of me. Well, I need to be baptized of you. What was the purpose of John's baptism? What have we read? Which one? It was to reveal the Son of God on this occasion. But what was his purpose, his ministry among the nation? As the one of whom the prophet spoke, the voice going before him. All right, to make people a, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
So it was to usher people into readiness for the kingdom of God. John says, I need to be baptized of you. Now, that is a proper statement of humility, but it is a default in the responsibility that God had given to John. John's work was to ready people for the kingdom in which John himself would never be a member. Jesus will later say in Matthew 11, verse 11, none greater born of women. He that is least in the kingdom is greater than he. So no, John was not baptized, nor did he need to be. He was sent to preach repentance and to baptize others. Jesus said, it's fitting that we fulfill all righteousness. Now, others were baptized for the remission of sins with faith in the coming Messiah. Jesus was baptized because he knew that John was sent from God to baptize. This was God's work and God's commandment. And what was Jesus' attitude toward his father? Submission. Obedience. Was he baptized for the remission of sins? Edna. He was baptized because it was his act of submission to the will of his father being proclaimed by John. And in that act of trust and submission, his father said, that pleases me. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So on this occasion, Jesus is inaugurated, identified at about the age of 30 to begin his ministry as God's servant among us. Now, almost immediately issues what is the second great event that the gospel writers record. And that is, immediately, whereas he had come of his own will and choice and desire to Jordan to be baptized, Matthew tells us in chapter 4, and Luke tells us, Mark tells us, that he was driven or led up of the Spirit in the wilderness there to be tested. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4 and continue this account. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Led, directed, Luke 4 verse 1 says he was driven of the Spirit. Why had Jesus come to be baptized? What was his statement to John? To fulfill, to demonstrate, to express that which was right. Why is he driven up of the Spirit in the wilderness? So that his righteousness might be tested. You know, it's one thing to express our purpose in baptism. And when we properly understand the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, because nothing I can do can remove the shame and the guilt. But I see him paying the debt, destroying Satan's power to accuse and condemn me because he is atoned. He's made the satisfying payment to Satan. When I see that, I am constrained then in my own helplessness and my my amazed delight that he would do that out of love for me, I consent to die and I am immersed and I rejoice in that peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ, as Romans 5 verse 1 says. But strangely and, and not infrequently, some of the most startling, dismaying, distressing, painful trials follow immediately after our baptism. Why should be otherwise? Captain of our salvation was immediately tested. Why? Why was Jesus to be thus tested? Because he represented the one chance for God's purpose to succeed. The one person who didn't belong on death row who could taste death for all men. So immediately the adversary, even as he had struck at the first Adam and destroyed God's handiwork, strikes the second Adam. The moment God acknowledges Jesus as my son, immediately Satan says, I'll get him. 
And so Jesus is led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward at home. And the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto them, All these things will I give, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him for a season, Luke tells us, verse 13 of chapter 4. And behold, Matthew tells us alone, the angels came and ministered unto him. I think that Jesus must have spent that month and a half. What were you doing in mid-March? If you had eaten your last meal on about March the 16th, do you think you would have remembered that meal? Our Lord goes into the wilderness they're surrounded by the wild beasts and is tempted for 40 days, Luke tells us. And what does his temptation consist during those 40 days? For it must appear that Satan's face-to-face combat with Jesus comes at the end of the 40 days when he's desperately hungry. I think our Lord has to be, among other things, tempted in the very purpose of his life. For you see, that's what the beginning of his ministry signifies. He surrendered to his father's righteousness. He went to John, as all God-fearing Jews did, and took his stand for Jehovah. He is immersed of John in Jordan. He is saying, the kingdom of God in my life, the rule of God in my heart. Now he goes away and he becomes pensive and reflective. Surely he must have meditated on what he meant by what he had done. Didn't you and I, when we were baptized, perhaps at an early age, but didn't we wonder? what it meant to be a Christian? Didn't we wonder if we were equal to the unknown fears that were in our mind that we might have to face? And then didn't we wretch with anguish and dis- disappointment and embarrassment when we became aware of that first failure of what we had done or neglect of the good that we should have done? A month and a half, our Lord is off by himself with his Father in his heart. How good it is that today, with all the appointments that you have and I have, we've set aside these moments to meditate and reflect on what our purpose in life is. As we cut the grass and as we send a check to our children who are in college and as we attend to family members that have needs, as we do all of that, that we pause and contemplate our relationship to him whose name we call upon ourselves. And I think these are some of the things that are going through the mind of Jesus. Quietness of the wilderness. That's one reason that I enjoy the out of doors. I do enjoy hunting and fishing. But I enjoy the pensiveness. A couple of mornings ago, I was up at 4.30 and went out side of Brownwood on a ranch. 
and in the darkness walked by faith to a paper towel tied on a cedar bush, turned back west according to instructions and learned that the man was trustworthy even as my Lord is in his word, and I learned to walk by faith toward heaven. And I stood up on the side of a hill overlooking an area where I was hoping that some turkeys would come through, and she did, but he didn't, so we'll have peanut butter on Thanksgiving. But as I was there and watched the glory of God doing it again, one more time, the world turned, upholding all things with the word of his power. As I heard the sounds of all of God's creation come alive, and as I saw the wildflowers strewn down through the woods, as I heard the screech of the red-tailed hawk as he rode the currents and then became instructed of how he and the buzzard always faced into the bluster of the currents. It was lifted, and I thought about my own trials and struggles in life. Learned a lesson from God's classroom that morning. We see Jesus was similarly impressed through meditation in the quietness and the isolation. Then comes the moment of truth. And from those those high points of meditation comes the real trial, and Satan comes with a threefold temptation. Basically, Satan is asking the question that all men, including ourselves, have asked, Who are you? Are you who you claim to be? And offers Jesus an easy, quick way to success. If you're the Son of God command these stones to be made bread. Couldn't he? God can make sons of Abraham out of stones. I know he could have made loaves of bread out of stones. If he can bring water from the plenty rock, I know he could have made bread for his son. Jesus responds by an appeal to the book of Deuteronomy thrice. I can remember on occasion when a, a beleaguered student in a senior class, and I would have received it more readily had it come from a freshman class, but when he wrote a letter sat down, typed it out, formulated, argued his case against memorizing Scripture. And I have been known a science member. On this particular occasion, uh, they were, during the course of our study of the Macedonian epistles, to memorize the book of Philippians, 104 verses, the last time I checked. And he wrote the letter, and he didn't, he didn't mince his words. He wasn't uh, ugly, but he was very forthright. He was terse. He was strong. And his concluding statement was, and you can share this with the class if you feel you'd like it. So I deleted his name and just Xerox and overlay. And I said, I think we really need maybe just let this brother speak for all of us who, who don't really know what there's that much to be gained from memory. Wrote memory, just memorizing words. And I really wanted, after speaking of some blessings and needs of memory or I wanted to point out about three misspelled words in the letter and say a little rote memory and spelling wouldn't have hurt this fellow. But I did on that occasion resist the temptation, though I didn't resist it sharing with you. I've tried to wonder when, as it were, all of the angels of heaven are leaning over the parapets of glory and watching as all of humanity waits for our hero to do battle with the Goliath of our soul. And one mistake, and we die together. One mistake. My Lord didn't say, find, find, crudence, concordance. It's in there somewhere. As his custom was, as we'll learn in our concluding study, he had gone to the synagogue from the child. He was taught the word of God. I'm glad you love the word. I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad we're reading together. May we be reminded of the need to lay that word up in our heart. My Lord quoted these scriptures. Of course, he had uttered them. He had inspired them. He had learned them as a child, like Timothy. 
able to make him wise and sound. And so on this occasion, when Satan says, Jesus, just couldn't be wrong, feed yourself. See, that's the basic answer that Satan always answered, offered to Jesus. Jesus, you don't have to die. There's another way to success. Peter would say, well, you'll never die. I won't let that happen. Jesus will say, get behind me, Satan. You're talking like Satan who offered me the, the quick fix, the bread. Well, I learned the lesson that the easy way when I'm faced with some trial of day is not always the right. It's not always the way to life. All times it's a shortcut to this. It's a shame to this. And then he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. And if you study a little bit of the geography and the architecture of that marvelous temple, which had been 46 years in building at the time of Jesus in AD 26 and was not completed until AD 63. Marks, amazed with stones that were 15 feet cubes, Josephus tells us, the foundation, adorned with beautiful work on the eastern extremity of the city of Jerusalem and the wall and the brook Kidron. So here's this deep brook valley just outside the wall and here's Jesus taken by the spirit of darkness to the temple from the wilderness where he'd been led to the spirit of God. I use my imagination occasionally. And I've learned a little bit as I read that these are not nice people wearing white robes. They're just real people. Real things happen. Real ordinary events. And I like to imagine that this was early in the morning. There had been a priest up there on that eastern wall of the temple looking toward the east for the first rays of the sun to sound the trumpet, the silver trumpet that would awaken the city so that the priests below in their robes would offer the morning sacrifice to cleanse it were the sins of the night, even as they had offered the evening sacrifice at sundown the night before to cleanse the sins of the day before. And so now here's the city coming alive and the people issuing through the giant doors of the temple as they are open and, and Jesus here and, and the devil says, what a time. All these people, the priests, they're all your friends. They would be enamored. What a way to prove you're the son of God. You're the, just jump off. And then he says, that's what the scripture says. And he quotes from the Psalms. Just jump off. Well, then God's promised the angel will bear you up unless you dash your foot against the stone. Verse 7 of Matthew chapter 4 gives us Jesus' reply. And it gives us a very practical help in studying with people. Wednesday night after class, I had one of those desperately distressing experiences of studying with brethren factious questions of such foolish consequence as to cause the name of our Lord to be held up to ridicule. We have some brethren coming to Brownwood and starting yet another group built upon another forbidding doctrine. Of everybody must put their lips on the same container. There are other groups of the body of Christ that have their own tent. And as we read first this verse and that verse relating to the cup of the New Testament and sought to allow Scripture to speak to Scripture. I thought of what Jesus said in verse 7 on this. Satan said, For it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning thee. Jesus said, It is written again. It is written again. Everything God says fits together. It's wholesome. It's given to life. There's balance. There's truth. There's consistency. You've quoted the psalmist to array him against the Lord, who also said, Thou shalt not make trial of the Lord. So the basic rule is truth is consistent. What our Lord was saying is, Satan, you don't understand what God has said. and This is not the way to prove my sonship. There's a great, there's a great temptation. You ever been in a stoplight, seen a fellow with his C-28, a fellow with his vet. They roll up, kind of give the eye from the bumper back to exhaust. 
look at red light and Trump accelerated just a couple of times. And what they're saying is, if you're the son of speed, let's go through the gears. You know, preachers fall into the trap of having to be number one and to have many introductions. My Lord, hopefully distinguishes between those who desire the titles and all speaking words of commendation of Epaphroditus. But the appeal to my Lord on this occasion was an appeal to his pride. Jump off and prove it. He's proved that way. Reminds us of the last challenge on the cross. He saved others himself. He can't save. If you're the son of God, come down off the cross. First challenge to Jesus and the last challenge came from Satan. He didn't answer either. We don't prove our allegiance to God. For others, and to just see the work of men in ways, the temples, the the grandeur, the sparkle. I wonder what it must have been to this carpenter who spent 30 years going to the Galilean hills with his father and felling the trees and using a maul and wedge to split the timbers and worked in that shop and was his arms and his back and his, his countenance bespoke the hard labor. And now Satan says, watch this. And with more skill than all the latest computerized electronic display, Jesus sees the world. Satan said, that you, it's mine, but I'll give it to you. Such heresy. Jesus created it without him, was not anything made that hath been made. It was all his. All Satan wanted was the word to get around that Jesus paid me home. He listened to what I said. He believed what I said. On this occasion, Jesus did not zap Satan with miraculous power. He could have called down fire from heaven. He could have obliterated him with a word. Jesus kept his trust in what God said. That helps me. I've not been up on the temple, but I've seen things that glittered to my eye that I wanted deep in my soul. I knew I didn't. You have to. It's not wrong to abound. Paul knew what it was to abound. He also knew what it was to humble. If we know where it comes from and what its purpose is, it's a trust, and we can use God's glory. But the point is that Jesus met each of these critical trials, the lust of the flesh, feed yourself, the lust of the eye, all of the kingdoms, the empty, vain pride of life. Prove that you're the son of God by jumping off. Jesus answered each of his trials in a way that Ted can, if he would, if I ponder his word, if I meditate there on day and night, then in the moment of truth, when I must not then have to run to try to find a sword, I can say with Jesus, that's not right. Well, how do you know it's not right? Because God said it's not. <laughs> Laugh if you would. But I believe his word is faithful. There have been times in my own life, brothers and sisters, those of you who've gone through some fiery trials, as the psalmist said, thou madest men to write over our heads, thou brought us through the fire and out of the water and set us in it wide place. You've gone through trials like that. There are times when everybody and everything argues that direction. And the only thing that says this direction is something God has said. You're sure. You find no sympathy even from a Job's wife, except this is what God said. I give him time to prove that he's what an example from our Lord. Thoughts that you would add or, or comments before we leave this momentous scene. We'll be turning to the first chapter of John's Gospel. But any question that you'd pose, something that occurred in your own study or as we reflect? Are we going to stop again at 11 Hilton? Okay. John chapter 1. I would like momentarily to backtrack. And maybe uh, when we have finished, we will still be 
own conjecture, and I'm certainly willing to concede this, but I think that there are some indications here that I've not always perceived that add some significance and dimension to what we're about to read. I'd like for us for just a moment to look at the first verse of chapter 2. All I'm interested in at this point is to try to ascertain what day we're about to read the event takes place on because the succeeding days and the events have a little bit of added significance if what we're about to see is accurate. First verse of chapter 2 says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Rabbinic law said that a maiden was always married on Wednesday, a widow on Thursday. The celebration and the events described in chapter 2 would lead us to assume it is the marriage of a maiden. If that's the case, then chapter 2 describes some events that take place on a Wednesday according to rabbinic law. This is the third day from the events last described as chapter 1 concludes, which would take us back to Sunday. Now, that's the day that Jesus has a conversation with Nathaniel. And then back prior to that, we read in verse 35, again the next day after, even as in verse 43 identifying Sunday, the day following. So the wedding was on Wednesday, chapter 2, verse 1. Verse 43 introduces the third day prior to that, which would be Sunday. Verse 35 would discuss the day previous to that, which would be Saturday. Verse 29, the day previous to that, which would be Friday. So that brings us back to Thursday as very possibly the day that Jesus comes out of the wilderness of temptation. And this group of religious leaders comes from Jerusalem to ask John who he is and what his relationship is to Jesus. We have to assume that Jesus coming out of the wilderness comes again into the area where John is baptized. So there are some assumptions, and, and we'll just leave it at that point. But as we read this, there are some interesting things about what takes place Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in the first week of the ministry of Jesus following his temptation. All right, we pick up the reading in verse 19 of John chapter 1. This is now the third great event in the life of Jesus. This is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not. But confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elijah? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. As said the prophet Isaiah, they which were sent were the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it. I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptized. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him. Now, I'm assuming this is Jesus coming out of the wilderness. 
Now, what is interesting, <clears throat> if you'll allow those assumptions, and they're not critical to the message, but if we allow those assumptions, then just as Jesus is completing his life and death struggle and temptation, John is about to undergo his. For here is John as, as he is approached by the Pharisees. Of course, that introduces the, the party of whom we sang a moment ago with Hilton's help. Who along with the Sadducees and Essenes who are not mentioned in the scripture but were known in the first century as the three major, major religious sects in first century religious study. What does the word Pharisee mean? Separated one. And they separated themselves by close attention to rites of purification. The longest book in the Mishnah among the Talmuds is the book that deals with the endless rites of purification. On the occasion when his disciples ate bread without first eating their, washing their hands, they were required before they ate, immerse their hands up to the wrist, hold their hands up so the water coursed down over their wrist, rinse their hands, and then allow the water to run off their fingers. That removed all defiles. You didn't do it that certain way. You were defiled. Jesus said, no, there's another one. That which comes outside the file rather than that which goes in is cast out of the bottom. But the Pharisees with their rites of purification and their attention to tithing. We live over on 43rd Street here in Lubbock. Evelyn, as her want has been wherever we live, found somebody who raised cement and under the, the faucet side of the house where she put her mint. And there was a constant contest between Ted with his lawnmower and Evelyn with her mint. I'd cut it down as it spread and, and she'd straighten the family out after Dad cut it down. But that mint just, just spreads and just eats up everything with its... I tried to think of a Pharisee as he very carefully says, can you imagine how many stems of mint in a patch this? So with their rigid adherence to tithing and purification, and drawing the circle against everyone who did not do it that way. As I told my brother the other night, I said, Brothers, I have remembered my Lord by drinking out of a sink container. I've done that many times. I don't have any problem. You don't do that in your own family, but, but I don't have any problem with that. But the problem I have is that you are coming into the city, driving a wedge among believers with a contention based upon a misunderstanding this application of scriptures. And thereby, none of us are saved. We hadn't said that. Didn't call on believers. Well, we consider you a brother, but not a faithful brother. Am I? Am I going to heaven if I use more than one cup on the Lord's table? So they have separated themselves in the same manner as the Pharisees who said, if you don't do it our way, wash your hands, certain things, tie a certain way, you're not faithful. But it is the deputation among the Pharisees that comes to John, puts him on notice. We won't know who you are. Who's giving you the right to baptize? What do you have to say for yourself? We'll see his answer. God willing, after I'm with